We, uh, we get to welcome today uh, to Emmanuel Church, uh, Bishop Julian Dobbs. Bishop Julian, say hi to us, please. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so thrilled to be with you, Brenda and I, here in the city. And it's just a delight uh, to be with you all this morning. Fantastic. Now, uh, Emmanuel, um, if you've been around uh, the church for a while, you have met uh, Bishop Julian. You've seen him. He's joined us before. He's joined us uh, via Zoom. Um, I think it was in November, the last time he was with us. Uh, so he is probably uh, familiar to most of us. But just to recap, a bishop is a little bit like in Bishop Julian. You can you can tell me if I'm if I'm in woeful error in. But, but a, a bishop is a pastor of pastors, um, a pastor who looks after a collection of churches that we use a big term called diocese, this family of churches that are united um, by our common faith in Jesus Christ and our uh, desire to follow him in mission. Now, Bishop Julian, is that a reasonable, have, have I fallen into egregious error? In, in That's regard? very reasonable. But before I answer that, I want to give a shout out to all the uh, children at Emmanuel today, especially those of you I know who are soon to be making your own profession of faith. And um, uh, later, Jim's going to ask me a little bit about what we're doing this afternoon. But I want to say to those of you who are children, it's so important you own your own faith for yourself. And uh, I'm just so thrilled to see so many of you on the call and uh, Megan praying for you earlier. Jim referenced um, what a bishop does. Yes, a bishop does that. A bishop also uh, is, has a role of ensuring that the church is upholding, declaring, and defending the faith that's been entrusted to us in the Bible. And so my particular role is to do that with focus around our diocese, our, our family of churches, of which Emmanuel is one part, a very important part, uh, 39 uh, congregations around the diocese, and um, and that's my role. So I'm with you today, and I'm, I'm just so thrilled. Brenda and I are so thrilled to be with you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, now, one of the things, so there, there's a few a few things that, that really only a bishop does. Um, so a bi only a bishop ordains. So we're not doing that uh, uh, today. So we'll, 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 we'll pick that up a different time. But one of the things that a bishop does is a bishop confirms people. Now, um, can you give us a little bit of sense? What is confirmation? I mean, you know, we talk about um, confirming one's reservation someplace. We talk about, I don't know, different kinds of confirmation. But this is a, this is a specific thing that we do within the church. Can you give us a sense of what is confirmation and why might somebody want to do it? Certainly, and it, 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 it is a, an extension of that explanation. We're confirming the faith for many of us in our tradition who were baptized as children or infants, and we're making it our own. And that's why I said earlier, it's so important that everybody makes a public uh, profession of faith. And we see this uh, in the Bible. Let me just read very quickly to you from Acts uh, chapter 18 in uh, verse 14. We read, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent two bishops, two apostles, uh, and it was Peter and John who came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, and then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. They received uh, God uh, and his enabling spirit into their, into their lives. So this afternoon in our service, I'm going to be asking those who are being confirmed to publicly confirm their faith in Jesus Christ. The Anglican Church asked for um, uh, a, a public 
affirmation or confirmation of faith for all uh, adult believers. And then I'm going to lay my hands on them, just like the apostles did in the Bible. And I'm going to pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would come and confirm their faith and defend them in the faith as they live their lives in this world. Fantastic. And that's a that's a huge deal. We're really excited uh, about this afternoon. We also this afternoon get to baptize uh, little John Rippon, which we're super excited about. Last week, we got to baptize Jonathan Ho. So we, we get to baptize adults. We get to baptize uh, children. And we get to confirm. So it's it's a super exciting service this afternoon at three o'clock. And we do have some slots available. So we have to do social distancing. So we have to have RSVPs in, in advance. However, you can click the link in the chat that I just put up um, and you can join us. We have a few slots left. So please uh, join us, RSVP and um, come along. Bishop Julian, how can we uh, be praying for the ministry of the diocese? Um, you know, what, how, how would you like us to be, to be joining uh, the diocese in prayer? Well, thank you uh, for asking about that. Prayer is so important, isn't it? And uh, around the diocese, uh, they pray for you as well as a congregation. And I, I believe one of the most important things that we can be doing for a diocese is praying for the congregations like Emmanuel around our diocese who are doing exactly what you're doing this morning. Some of them online, a lot of them back in person now, as we will be this afternoon, uh, uh, praising God, worshiping him. Being discipled in the faith, reaching their communities for Christ, serving the poor, uh, planting new churches, and Jim's helping me do that around the diocese. And so we can be praying for those things. We've also uh, welcomed uh, two new bishops among us in the diocese, Bishop Bill Love, who's uh, joined us from a diocese that he was leading, and a man called Bishop Dan Herzog, who's joined us today. Uh, they're older men who are going to assist me as bishops in the diocese, and I'd welcome your prayers for them. Uh, as we as we're part of this great family, of course, one of the one of the fantastic things about Christianity is we're not on our own. We're in a relationship with Almighty God. We'll think of this this afternoon as we look at the passions of Scripture um, through Christ, and then we're in a relationship with one another in the church, our local church, for you at Emmanuel and me this morning, but also more broadly to that to the body of Christ around the world. So your prayers in that regard would be a great gift. Fantastic. Well, let's pray right now, and then we'll go to our to uh, to share the peace with one another in in a breakout group. So, Jay, if you could get those uh, ready, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Bishop Julian Dobbs and for Brenda, his wife. We thank you, Father, for their ministry among us. We thank you uh, for their commitment to the gospel, um, their faithfulness. Uh, to you, to your word, um, and their uh, faithful leadership uh, of Emmanuel and many other churches around the diocese. Father, we ask that you will grant your church, just like Jesus asked um, that we might be one, um, as uh, you and uh, the Lord Jesus and the Spirit are one. Um, Jesus asked that we might be one within the church, rooted in the truth which only Christ can reveal, um, and bound together in a love that only Christ can pour out. So will you grant that at Emmanuel, will you grant that within our diocese? Will you grant that uh, in all who profess and call themselves Christians? We ask this uh, for your honor and for the good of this world who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So open our lips that we may declare his praise within earshot of those who have not yet heard of uh, his good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of John, 
chapter 21, verses 4 to 14. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? <clears throat> they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out, of the la out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. Let's go now to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious, loving Father, we thank you for the word of God which you have given to us, that has been read to us this morning, that we hold in our hands. May your Holy Spirit come now and be our teacher, and may the glory of Jesus always be our supreme concern. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as we gather to worship the Lord today and come into his presence, I want us to go to that passage which has been uh, read to us uh, from John's Gospel. So if you have it there uh, in John's Gospel, uh, let's open it up at chapter 21. Because early on the first Easter, the first resurrection morning, the, the morning of the great discovery that Jesus had risen from the dead, there at the empty tomb were two women, the two Marys. And they were told by an angel, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. So think where Jesus is with some geography. He's in Jerusalem, in the Holy Land, in the land of Israel. And these women are told to go and tell the disciples that the tomb is empty, that he's risen, and they're to go up to the north to Galilee. And here in our reading in John chapter 21, the gospel reading, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is already up there. He's there in Galilee. And he says to these disciples, come and have breakfast. And none of them, we're told, dare ask, who are you? Because they knew it was the risen Jesus. So here's Jesus, now risen. Some of these disciples who are on their fishing boat in the north of the Sea of Galilee know very well indeed. And yet he's someone who, after the resurrection, is amazingly different. Someone who belongs to a whole new order of existence. Someone who the Apostle Paul would later describe the first fruits of a new creation. We'll look at that at this afternoon service. 
And what's Jesus doing? The disciples have gone back to their, their old way of life. They were fishermen. What's Jesus doing? He's meeting them and he's putting them at ease. And he invites them to come off their boat and to join him for a breakfast that he has prepared. This, for me anyway, is one of the most moving post-resurrection accounts uh, which dominate the final two chapters of the Gospel of John. It's a story that's full of power, and it's a story that's got resonance. It looks backward, and it also looks forward. It's, it's, it's grand. There's Jesus risen from the dead, and yet it's very simple. He's making breakfast for the disciples. It's for today. It's for every day, and yet, in some respects, it's, it's out of this world, just like the resurrection itself. Christ is risen, shouts these chapters in the Gospel of John. Risen not just in hearts or in minds, but risen physically and bodily and actually and truly. Does not the Bible and do not the creeds, the creed we've just recited of the Christian church, categorically insist that underlying fact, that fundamental reality, that Jesus Christ is still today life-transformingly risen from the grave. From the first to the last, Christ being risen is the witness of the New Testament. And that's where John was in the previous chapter, in chapter 20. He wrote these words, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why did these things get written down in the Bible? So that we may believe, that we may believe this morning at Emmanuel, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is risen. And so we see these things also in the book of Acts in chapter 1. Where, we, where Luke, the author of Acts, writes, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them. You see, the resurrection of Jesus on that first Easter Sunday morning is not just part of the Christian story. It is the heart of the Christian story. The resurrection is not just some, what could we call it, antiquated fairy tale or a quaint theological relic from 2,000 years ago. Christianity's central claim concerns the resurrection of someone who was a contemporary of those individuals who first proclaimed the resurrection story. The life, the ministry, the teaching, the miracles of Jesus were unparalleled, and death could not hold him down. And such a claim has never been made or with, with any shred of credibility about any other person on this earth. And as a result, something changed in the life of those early followers. And what changed in them changed the world. Yes, initially, of course, they had hoped that Jesus would bring some kind of nationalism, national renewal, and the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes in Israel, and they'd read their Old Testament, and they'd seen him crucified on the Good Friday cross, and all of those hopes seemed to be dissolved. Objectively speaking for them, nothing really had changed. Israel was not liberated that Easter Sunday morning. 
No, Pontius Pilate was, was still the governor of Judea. There was a whole lot of injustice and oppression that was still happening in the nation. And yet, and yet, something had happened to convince the disciples of Jesus that a new day had dawned. And there was no looking back, despite what was still going on in their country. And they knew as well as we do, that dead people do not rise. Yet their unshakable conviction based on what they saw with their own eyes and what they heard from those women who had been at the tomb was that Jesus had risen from the grave. And John chapter 21 verses 1 through 14 is one of those uh, what some call faith-infusing experiences. And John loves these, these signs. You see them right throughout at his, at his gospel. Think of them. The wedding at, at Cana, wonderful signs. Uh, the raising of Lazarus, uh, the woman at the well, and others. And here in our gospel reading is an event, one event, that singles, uh, signals beyond itself something of a much wider significance. At the end of John chapter 20, it appears that John is finished. He wraps up his account of the life and ministry of Jesus very neatly. But then at the, the beginning of chapter 21, it's as if he says, oh, there's more I've got to tell you. Because he's so full of the resurrection, he wants to bring us more. He wants to bring us as much as he can. And we're thankful for it. He wants us to be sure that the resurrection means what it says, that it really happened. And that is why he, he adds what, what we might call this wonderful epilogue chapter that we're studying this morning. So let's go and have a look at it. John chapter 21. Have your Bibles open if you can. The scene shifts, as I've said, from Jerusalem and the post-Passover period back up to the north, back up to the home, back up to the, the beauty and the peace of Galilee for these disciples, verse 2. And no doubt they were feeling strange without Jesus, uncertain perhaps, uh, a lot of questions in their minds about the last week, the week of Holy Week and Palm Sunday, and Jesus on the cross. And look, verse 3, there's Peter, the apostle, he's the initiator. And what does he say? He says, Amidst all of that confusion, he says, I'm going fishing. Something practical, something familiar, something safe, something that he can get on with. And it seems as if it's been a very unsuccessful fishing expedition on the Sea of Galilee that night, because we see they had no fish at all. And then look, verse one, Jesus appears standing on the edge of the shore, verse four. And that phrase in verse 1 is interesting because in the Greek of the New Testament, it literally means he has, he has been made manifest or he has, he, has, he has been made visible or he has been known. What was previously hidden has been revealed. There's the resurrected Jesus. He's standing there on the side of the Sea of Galilee, the lakeside. And it's significant because nowhere in the New Testament accounts of the post uh, Easter period, do people go looking for Jesus? Notice that. He is in control. He chooses the moments to reveal himself. He chooses to whom he will reveal himself. And as we reflect on the risen body of Jesus, 
we must remember that we are talking about a great mystery. When, when the gospel writers like John write about the risen body of Jesus, they're on the very frontiers of language and experience. I mean, this is blowing their minds. The risen Lord Jesus, we know, is, is no longer constrained by material limitations as we are. The risen Lord can pass through a sealed tomb and a locked door. He can immediately appear or disappear. And much of the time he is not visible to human eyes. And yet we know he can be seen. He can talk. He can eat. He can be touched. And at times his appearance must have been reassuringly ordinary and at other times blindingly radiant. But notice this, brothers and sisters at Emmanuel this morning. The resurrected Jesus, whom we discover in the Gospels, is no ghost. He's no disembodied spirit. He has a new physical body in which the spirit is supreme, unfettered by time and space, free from dependence on the environment, gloriously transformed. And yet this is a very real physical body. In a true sense, it's the same body, and yet it's a transformed body with a sometimes hard to define difference with which briefly de delays or prevents their recognition. We see this back in John 20. Think with me, when Mary sees the Lord Jesus there at the tomb on the day of resurrection, and she thinks he's the gardener. And here in John 21, despite having seen the risen Jesus on a previous occasion in Jerusalem, they don't realize immediately that it's him. I don't know, what was it the early morning mist like we've got in the city here this morning or the lakeside mist in Galilee that day? Who can tell? But surely shot through this passage in John chapter 21 is a nervousness about the disciples. There's a sort of hesitancy of recognition as they meet their Lord again. And yet look, verse 12, none of them, none of the disciples dared ask who are you? Who are you? And the passage unfolds. Look with me now, if you will. Jesus speaks to them. He says, children. He calls. It's as if he's, it's a term of affection. My brothers, guys, lads. It's, it's, it's a very affectionate phrase. He says to them, he already knows, you have no fish. Jesus already knew and then something in Jesus' voice inspired enough confidence to do what fishermen are never keen to do, and that is to take advice. Jesus gives them some fishing advice. He says, cast the net onto the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And they do that, and there's a terrific haul of fish. Do you notice verse 6? Peter and John react immediately when John sees the miracle. He knows what's happening. There's a moment of revelation and recognition, and recognition. And he says, verse 7, it is the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? He meets them in a very personal moment. And then there's Peter, the action man. And he sees this as a summons to action. And what does he do? He jumps in the water and he heads for the shore. And there on the shore is Jesus with just what they needed after a long night of fishing on the lake, a cooked breakfast on the beach, verse 9, fish and bread. And they are tired and wet and hungry and confused. And Jesus is loving and thoughtful and prepared and waiting. 
What an extraordinary tenderness from Jesus. And then look with me, verse 10, Jesus invites them to contribute to the breakfast from their own catch. Isn't that great? It's a reminder for us to look for the resources God has given us already as we set about engaging in our mission with him. The disciples had caught 153 large fish. That's a lot of fish, verse 11. Verse 12, a wonderful invitation from Jesus. Come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they all knew it was the Lord. I've often put myself in, in their position as best I can in my mind, that resurrection morning, that resurrection experience on the Sea of Galilee. They probably had hundreds of questions in their minds, but they're silenced in the face of the unshakable conviction that this is Jesus, whom they knew unmistakably alive here in Galilee, somehow different, now a part of the realm that he had talked about on the other side of death. And I'm almost certain that the Apostle John tells this story in his gospel principally to build up our faith and to nurture belief in the risen Jesus. We see that verse 14. Like some of you who may have had the incredible opportunity to go to the Holy Land, Brenda, my wife, and I have stood there, as some of you may have done, right on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, where this resurrection story took place. And for our benefit, John tells us the story to convince us that it's real, that this has happened. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination. And it's written to persuade us that there is now another starting point for thinking and living. You see, listen, the starting point is not the economy or our intellectual ability or international politics or left wing or right wing or being in the center or any other type of wing or anything in any of the ideologies of the world. We as disciples of Jesus have the privilege of saying with the disciples on the lakeside, it is the Lord, and bowing our heads in worship and submission in response to the risen Jesus. That's what I'm going to be asking those who are being confirmed this afternoon. Do you yield over your life? Do you commit your life? Do you choose to follow Christ? There's a very personal resonance we hear and see in the story, but there are wider resonances. They're not all original to me, but I want to share some of them with you this morning. Here's the first one. There's a resonance about power. And again, I'll pick this up this afternoon, but just as a little bit of a foretaste of this afternoon's sermon, this is Jesus who is the Lord over all creation. How do I know that? Well, the disciples were experienced fishermen. They weren't deluded, as some people suggest. They knew that this catch of fish was another miracle. It was a sign and a sign of the supreme authority of Jesus over nature itself. It wasn't the first such sign they had seen like this. And that is why John is so quick to see that this is the Lord again. Paul later develops it. Again, I'll look at this this afternoon in his theology about Jesus in Colossians, where he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He writes, for in him, all things in heaven 
and on earth were created, things visible and things invisible. So that's the first resonance we have here. Whether it's a shoal of fish or the safety of a nation or your individual future or mine, they are all ultimately subject to the power of the risen Jesus. And that should build confidence in our lives. Here's the second resonance, very important one for disciples of Jesus, very important in the city, very important in New York. It's a resonance about mission. Look with me. Jesus is the Lord of salvation. And I, I wonder, are we meant to see here echoes for Peter and the others who were first called by Jesus in Galilee to be what? Fishers of men. And here's Jesus doing something extraordinary with the same people, again, with fish. Is there a parallel here for Peter, for all that lies ahead in the work and the advancement of the gospel? Could it be that the Lord is wanting Peter? He's wanting us to see that. Work done in the power of the resurrection produces what? An amazing haul. Not of fish, but of people. A haul, notice, that goes way beyond their expectations and dreams, a hall where everybody is in the net and nobody is lost because the gospel, the, the, the gospel net does not break and we're all landed safely on the shore. I, I believe we're meant to see that because this story underlines the impressiveness of the catch of fish. Verse six, look with me quickly. They couldn't haul it in. There were so many fish. Verse eight, the net was full. Verse 11, there were 153 whoppers, large fish. Is there not just a hint here of the reach and effectiveness of the gospel? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. New York is not too hard for the Lord. And a reminder that the Lord is the one who brings in the catch. There's nothing wrong here with the disciples' fishing experience. That was their trade. Their technique is not wrong. Their methodology is not wrong. Nothing wrong with their equipment. All of those things are good. It's a bit like us in our evangelism and the way we share the gospel. We can do all the right things and say all of the right things in the right way. But what we need is a touch of the risen Lord to transform our effectiveness into Holy Spirit-empowered evangelists. And don't we need that in the city? We sure do. A church that wants to see any effectiveness to any degree of effectiveness and mission has to throw itself in prayerful dependence and submission at the feet of Jesus and to trust him to work in his resurrection power. So there's a resonance about mission. There's a resonance about power. Here's the third one. Again, not all original to me, but there's a beautiful resonance about fellowship. Do you see that? This is the Lord of the church. Emmanuel, our diocese, our province, the Anglican Church in North America, beyond us to the body of Christ. Here on the beach is a fellowship meal, communion in some respects with Jesus. Not with bread and wine, but this time with bread and fish. Fish which came to be the beautiful symbol of the Christian church. And that ancient Greek word, ichthus, fish, which served as an acronym for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. It's, it's a beautiful biblical image. 
It's an image about our communion with Jesus. And here is an invitation to a meal with Christ. An invitation to a meal in in the Jewish culture in the Middle East carried a much greater significance than a quick bite at Chipotle or Kava. A meal with Jesus is an invitation that expresses and implies a desire for communion, intimacy, fellowship, friendship. Jesus is the host. Look, verse 12. Do you see that? Jesus is the host. He issues the invitation. He says, come. And they're guests with the Lord on the beach. And nothing else seems to matter. Don't you remember Jesus taught them in the upper room about that special meal which looked forward to his sacrifice on the cross. And he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper this afternoon. Another meal that speaks of a continuing gracious provision of the Lord for his followers, receiving him by faith with thanksgiving as we receive bread and wine. And here on the lakeside, it's extraordinarily intimate, isn't it, with Jesus. The possibility of a relationship with God will be fulfilled in that ultimate meal, which the Bible points us to in heaven with the Lord. We call it the great wedding feast of the Lamb. We read about it in Revelation chapter 19. To respond to his invitation now is to enjoy Jesus in the fellowship of the church. There's no greater fellowship, and it is to be secure, and it is to secure our participation in the great fellowship with him in heaven. There's an old Scottish Bible commentator who puts it like this. In the morning light, we shall see him standing steadfast on the shore. I've been reading uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress throughout Lent, and I'm always so, so moved by the account of Bunyan crossing over the final river of life with all its uncertainties and obstacles, and eventually he lands safe. On the other side, in the morning light, we shall see him standing steadfast on the shore. So there we have them. A resonance in the story. It's a personal resonance. Can we say with John, as I consider this passage, it is the Lord. He's welcoming me. He's calling me even this morning. A resonance about mission. He's the Lord of salvation. A resonance about fellowship. He's the Lord of the church. Well, I've got just a few moments for a fourth and final one. Look, a resonance about love. Can there be any more appealing words anywhere in the New Testament highlighting the heart of the risen Jesus than these words in our passage, come and have breakfast? An invitation that comes from Christ's own heart of love. It reminds me of those words he spoke earlier in the Gospels. Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. An invitation that reminds us about our own need and our own worth. An invitation that takes us to the very heart of the Lord's love for us. He says, come, come. There he is, standing on the lakeside with the fire and bread and fish, calling us to breakfast. A God who loves and cares and serves and acts. This is our Jesus. This is the stranger on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is the one in the midst who who rises to fill the horizon, 
This is the Lord of power and love and mission and fellowship, not just someone who Christians can get to know in some sort of private, formal way. This is the Lord. This is the Lord. And the resurrection opens up for those who follow Jesus, a new life and a new world, even when the circumstances around us don't seem to have changed. And that new life and that new world, though they will be fulfilled in the life yet to come, they begin right here, right now, in the fellowship of the church, recognizing with one another that we bow before the living Lord Jesus Christ and we recognize him for who he is. And so may he enable each one of us to experience and listen and respond to his invitation. Come, come, come to me. Come and have breakfast. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, the tenderness of these words moves us incredibly deeply. They tell us so much about you, about your love, about your restoring grace, about your care for our circumstances. May we respond like those in our Bible reading this morning who said when they encountered you, it is the Lord. And may we cast off those earthly things and come to you and follow you. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.